Our Old Testament lesson comes from Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations is sandwiched right in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Hear now the word of the Lord from Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. This is the word of the Lord. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What does it mean to wait quietly? We'll see how this connects to our passage in Thessalonians later. But, but waiting quietly means waiting on the Lord. It's sometimes even in prayer, our prayers can become overly wordy. Sometimes we are so convinced we know what God needs to do about this that we're going to sit there and lecture God about what he needs to do. Hmm. How, how helpful is that, really? I mean, I'll grant you, that's, that's better than not talking to God. But, what does it mean to wait quietly before God? In silence, my soul is waiting. Sometimes it means simply praying 
Lord, have mercy. And I don't know what to pray for. And so I will pray some, Lord, have mercy. And not know what to pray for. And that's okay. Sometimes we don't know. And our problem is, at least my problem is, maybe you don't have this problem, but my problem is, being quiet is really hard. How do you actually be quiet? And then your brain starts going, how do I actually be quiet before God? It can take, that's where, that's where simply sometimes saying, Lord, I don't know what to say. And saying that to God, I don't know what to say, so Lord, please have mercy. Being quiet before God, being silent before the Lord, requires us to say that we don't know what to say. (laughs) That we can be quiet before the Lord, sitting alone in silence. And when we are down in the depths, we need to hope in the Lord, wait upon the Lord, and trust Him to save us from our sin and misery. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Hear now the, the word of the Lord. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. We've been seeing throughout our series in First Thessalonians that Paul's focus is on these themes of faith, hope, and love. We are to continue in the Christian faith as we believe God in the work of faith. We are to keep loving God and neighbor in our labor of love. And all of this because of the steadfastness of hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul's been, been encouraging us in is that, that we must continue believing. So what's, what's lacking in our faith is that we have not yet persevered to the end. What is lacking in our love is that it has not yet grown to what it will be. What's lacking in our hope is that we, are, we continue to press on. And that's why hope is so important in Paul's letter. And even though uh, he hasn't used it in this section, the idea has been very much, it was very much, the, if you remember at the very end of chapter uh, 3, 
he spoke of how may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So at the end of chapter 3, Paul had made this connection between love and holiness, that you may the Lord may make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, and that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. And that's where now, in the beginning of chapter 4, we've focused on what it means to be blameless in holiness, which we saw last time, and now abounding in love. But because I've split these two parts of the passage apart, I want to keep bringing them back together for you. Because holiness and love can never be pulled apart. What happens if you pull apart holiness and love? Holiness without love becomes legalism. It just becomes about, ah, we must make sure that everything is done exactly the way God says, and you can lose sight of loving your neighbor. But at the same time, if you try to do love without holiness, well, we probably see a lot of that in our culture. Where, ah, can't we all just get along? Oh, yes, if you're going to sin, no, it's no big deal. When does God ever say sin is no big deal? No. Love without holiness becomes mere permissiveness. So, actually, holiness without love isn't really holiness. True holiness is profoundly loving. True love is profoundly holy. These two things are never to be pulled apart. Holiness if, 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 if you ever think of holiness as being, oh, that, that sounds cold and rigid, then that's the legalism. That, that's legalism that you're thinking of because true holiness is beautiful and it's, it's, the, it's what we in our call to worship when that he has made us beautiful in, as we worship him in the splendor of holiness. We saw last time that the, the will of God is for our sanctification. And we saw how Paul highlights our sexual desires in this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul says, namely, that you abstain from sexual immorality and put positively that you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. There's both, there's both the negative, you know, don't do the bad thing, but also the positive. Live as a person of holiness and honor. And we saw that this is because God made us for himself. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is for the body. There is a a wholeness and a beauty and a richness in knowing Christ Jesus. And our sexual relations in marriage are supposed to be a picture of that. And it's to be a beautiful picture. The Lord wants you for himself. And, And that's where... Now we turn to brotherly love. And uh, you often hear that there are three different words for love in Greek. There's eros, dealing with romantic or sexual love. Philos, dealing with brotherly love. And agape, dealing with divine love. Now, that's not entirely wrong. But we need to be careful not to overdo the distinction. Here in verse 9... Paul says, now concerning brotherly love, Philadelphia, 
Yes, that's where the city gets its name from. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Uh, but then how does Paul describe this? He says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love, agapao, one another. So what's the difference between brotherly love and agape here? None. In fact, Paul's saying that the way that you should love one another, the, way, the brotherly love that you have for one another, should be characterized by agape. Agape. Oh, and by the way, even though he didn't use the word eros in the previous section, think about how that works. How does Christ love his bride? Does Christ love his bride with something other than agape? No, by the way, in case you're wondering. So what is our eros supposed to look like? Agape. So when you see all of these different words being used in Greek, oh sure, they do have very clear distinctions in the meaning, but when you look at what scripture talks about in terms of how our love ought to function, you'll find a lot more overlap than sometimes it may, it may sound like. Because your love for your wife should never degenerate into anything less than agape, Christ's love for his bride. And likewise, our brotherly love, our Philadelphia in the church, refers to loving one another. And that's where it's, it's helpful to have a different word for it because it's very clear what Paul means here. He's talking about how do we love one another in the body of Christ. And as a church, we are supposed to be a family. We are supposed to love one another as a family, as brothers and sisters. Peter says it very much the same way in 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Philadelphia, love one another, agapao, earnestly from a pure heart. So, once again, love, what does brotherly love look like? What does it look like in the church to, to love one another? It looks like the way God has loved us. As Peter goes on to say, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Notice that Peter and Paul here are saying it almost exactly the same way. How do we come to love? Peter says, love one another since we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Paul says, "You, you, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Why do we love one another? How do we love one another? Because God has, by his word, changed us, remade us, taught us, instructed us, shown us what it means to love. In, for both Peter and Paul, our love for one another, our brotherly love, is rooted and grounded in God's love for us and is communicated to us through God's own teaching through the living and abiding word of God. A few weeks ago, we we heard about the Word of God. How does God himself teach us? Well, it it comes to us, if you think about it, in those days, as as we talked about in Sunday school today, uh, in those days, they didn't have any of the New Testament. When, When Paul's letter to the Thessalonians arrives, that's the first piece of New Testament scripture they probably had a a copy of, because most of it hadn't been written yet, and what had been written yet probably hadn't made it very far. And for that matter, you couldn't afford to have a copy of 
the Old Testament in your home, most likely. That's extremely expensive. There's going to be a couple of copies. Maybe your church has a complete copy. That would be awesome. So how do you, I mean, how do you know the Word of God? You're going to know it from hearing it. You're going to know it from the preaching of the Word. You're going to know it from what you hear. And also, it is true. In those, you know, in those days, you know, because you had so little access to it, you would listen carefully, and you would, ah, I want to remember this because this, that, I'm not, I can't go check it up, check up on it later. You, I mean, you, we all know this. I mean, for those of you who are older, you used to have a lot of phone numbers memorized, right? Right? Mm-hmm. We all had all these phone numbers memorized. Does anybody memorize phone numbers anymore? Why bother? It's already in my phone. So that's the way that's the way we work. It's understandable. But why do you know? How do you know how to love one another? It's not just that you've read about this in your Bible or you've heard lots of sermons about it. Paul's point is God Himself has taught you. And yes, He uses Bible reading, He uses the preaching of the Word. But it's also the incarnation of the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And by the coming of His Holy Spirit, the living and abiding Word of God now dwells with us. The the Holy Spirit is the presence of the exalted Christ with His people. So you now know how to love, and not just, this isn't just an academic exercise. This is what you know love, and you love one another. I mean, and. Paul says that the Thessalonians are actually good at this. For indeed, verse 10, that is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. As Timothy has traveled back from Thessalonica through Macedonia, Timothy has heard the stories about how the Thessalonians have loved their brethren in every town. Now, it'd be kind of nice if we could hear those stories because... What does that mean? What does that look like? What's, what's he talking about there? Well, we don't necessarily need to have all the stories. We can actually look around the rest of the New Testament and see, ah, here's how the apostles describe this. So, for instance, in 1 John 3, John describes what does love look like? How do we, by this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What does brotherly love look like? It looks like caring for those in need. It looks like when when your brother, when somebody in the body of Christ is in need, You care for them. What does it mean to lay down your life for someone? Well, actually, let's let's take a a different example. Paul talks about this when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. He's talking about enrolling widows on a list, but he's describing what a woman is supposed to be before she becomes a widow. Having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to 
lay down our lives for others. Well, I mean, bringing up children is hard work. I mean, giving birth to a child is called labor for a reason. But bringing up a child is even more work. I mean, showing hospitality. The word for hospitality is love for strangers. So, now, if, if, you want to, if you want to talk about having your friends over, that's, that's the next line, washing the feet of the saints, sort of having your friends over and caring for them, loving them well. That's, that's, that's a good thing to do, and it's part of what Paul says to do. But that's not hospitality. Hospitality is welcoming strangers into your home. Hospitality is loving strangers. It's xenophilia. It's love, love, for the, love for the foreigner, love for those who are strangers, welcoming them into your home and caring for them. And caring for the afflicted, looking out for those in need, doing what it takes to provide for them. So if you want to know what Paul means by brotherly love, he's talking about the real sort of life-on-life care for those around you. And it can be a challenge sometimes to do this well. And it's especially hard because uh, we don't necessarily live all that close to each other. And so sort of being able to sort of work well together is, is helpful. Uh, I mean, the, four years ago, we moved downtown so that we could be within walking distance of two other families in the church. And it's been, you know, for the last four years, we've, had, we've now been able to have morning prayer once a week with those two families and others as well. And it, it makes a difference as you're engaged life on life. Uh, so that's where... If, I realize so most of you are already settled in your, in your homes, but if anybody is looking for a house, my next door neighbor is going, to be, is going to be selling her house and moving to Granger. So if you're looking for a house, and there's going to be another house moving across the street to, uh, from us next summer. So um, if you're looking for a house, let um, but, but Paul, Paul's admonition is that we do this wherever we are. That wherever we are, we, we do this life on life. And we urge you, brothers, Paul says, to do, to do this more and more. And we heard the same language in, in verse 1 where Paul summarized his doctrine of sanctification, that there's, there's, there's the already and the not yet. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, back in verse 1, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Our sanctification is both an already, as our catechism puts it, we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, But there's also the more and more. We are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And that's where Paul sees our present identity as being connected to both the cross and the resurrection of Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I have suffered with him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. His resurrection life is now at work in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what God's love, that's what Christ's love for us looks like. And that's what love for one another looks like. Now, our, our understanding of this, our experience of this, our practice of this is still pretty fragmentary. But that's who we are and it's... And it's, so the Christian life is actually a become more and more of who you already are in Christ. Now, the question then comes to you in your particular situation. Okay, so what's the next step in the more and more? So I know 
for some, for some of you, especially those of you with a lot of little kids, um, when, especially, I'll put it more particularly, for some of you ladies with lots of little kids, you hear that list of what a widow is supposed to be when she gets to be a widow, and you're like, okay, this whole bringing up children thing, I'm, I'm, okay, I got that. That's the one I'm working on. It's all the other ones that feel overwhelming to me. Right. That's okay. Each season of life is going to have its own parts, that where you have certain parts that you focus on and certain parts that you say, okay, that's something that I know I'm called to do, I want to do, and we'll, we'll get there someday. <laughs> because it's the more and more. It's not everything at once. Now, for those of you who are before that stage, who haven't yet got a whole bunch of kids, think about it ahead of time and start working on it before you have a bunch of kids. Because if you start to develop the patterns in your life that you are showing hospitality and washing the feet of the saints and caring for the afflicted before you have all the craziness of that stage of life, then, then well, those things will probably get pushed off to the side and become a much smaller part of your life during the crazy years. <laughs> It'll still be part of where you're going. And you know that's part of where you're going because this is part of what it means to just follow Jesus. And that's where it's when, it, I, mean, I, I can just say that as we now are coming to the end of those years where now we have more time for the other things, it's been a great opportunity because, because we tried to practice them at, at, like, at, the, at least somewhat during those years, <laughs> it's now easier to then build that up as we reach the stage where, oh, we actually have the ability to do more. I remember a young man who had to make a, a, a major career decision where his dream job was offered to him, but it would require him to go on the road half the time and be away from his family. The pay was incredible. The alternative was to take a sideways transfer into a dead-end job with half the pay. But he could be home every night. He has never regretted the decision he made. He took the sideways track. Turned out to be not so dead end as he thought it was going to be. Thanks be to God. God provided the way. But he didn't know that when he said, okay, my career is not the thing that matters. What matters is I need... He, 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 looked, at, he looked at these same... Actually, if you, if you look at what Paul says about the widow... These are pretty much the same sorts of traits that he had talked about in terms of what a, a deacon or an elder is supposed to be. Because <laughs> honestly, it's just what a, an exemplary Christian is supposed to be. And it's just, what does is, what is, what is the Christian life look like? It's, it looks like caring for those in need. It looks like you know, providing for your family. It looks, it looks like living as the people of God. In And I love hearing him now, years later. His, that, that sideways track wound up taking him out of town, so I only get to hear from him occasionally as to how he's doing. But it's encouraging to hear how he is faithfully laboring as an elder in Christ's church in another city. And you get to see the fruit of that decision as he said, no, I'm going to follow Jesus in my, with my family and in my, in my work. And that has been tremendously encouraging. And, and that's where Paul then talks about what does this brotherly love look like in verse 11. And, and he lays out three things. To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, all three of these things, 
may sound very different to us than Paul intended. Because (laughs) we speak English and we have this silly thing called the you that doesn't tell you whether it's singular or plural. It's plural. Oh, that changes things. If you are aspiring to live quietly, you plural. If you're minding your own affairs, you plural. And you're working with your hands, you plural. This is not the going off in your own little corner and doing your own little thing all by yourself. This is how we ought to live as the people of God. The picture of living quietly is this stillness before God and man, the tranquility of Lamentations 3 had talked with us about, that brotherly love is not preoccupied with getting your own way. And particularly in Thessalonica, Paul's concern is that the, the church not kick up a fuss before the watching world, but mind your own affairs, plural. Paul is is not an individualist. He wants y'all to mind y'all's affairs. The Christian community needs to be, you might say, its own patronage network, taking care of each other, loving each other, following Jesus together. Minding your affairs means being involved in each other's lives so that you can know how to encourage and build each other up in the midst of the situation that you're in. And and to work with your hands. Now, our culture tends to think in terms of uh, think of work in terms of what you get paid to do, but Paul, like most of humanity, thinks of work in terms of how you f- get something to eat. <laughs> when we think about work, we oftentimes think about work in terms of what you get paid to do, but the work that you do, I mean, every Everything you do in life. I mean, what is it? When I, when I think about the old, the old, I had my my junior hires watch some videos this this last week on on a 17th century farm and what did it look like? And everything you do on a 17th century farm is all about how to get food from the soil to the table through all sorts of processes. <laughs> yeah. How to get food from soil to table, or and then how to get clothing in the same process. That's food and clothing is sort of this is what this is what you're all about. And that's where whether it's whether it's getting paid to do it or whether it's the preparation part of part of the challenge is we have all of these great labor saving devices and machines that we've come up with that have a tendency to isolate us. One of the things they point out in this in this video was that, you know, the old children's song, "Patty cake, patty cake, baker's man." You know, mark it with a B and put it in the oven for baby and me. That was because the oven is a community oven in the middle of the village, and so everybody's bringing their their loaf of bread to the same oven. How do you know which loaf of bread is yours? Mark it with a B or with a T or with whatever your last name is. All of these things that were done more communally are now done individually. And that's one of the challenges for us as living as the people of God is how do we live 
in ways that are engaged, where, where we are working with our hands, minding our affairs, but that is something that's plural, not just singular. And that's, it's a challenge for us. I'm not, I'm not pretending I have all the answers, but I'm saying Paul is challenging us to live as the people of God, to be thinking about these things, not just as random individuals all by our, you know, each on their own. But brotherly love demands that each member of the community be useful to the others. So how is it that I can love and serve my brothers and sisters? And one of the, one of the things that I just want to encourage all of you to th- in, in, in all of this is I am not wanting to say, and let's find more things to do. No. It's how do we connect in the things we're already doing? What are the things where, oh, we do this, we do that. Oh, we could do that together. Sort of like the old baking in the same oven. What are the things that we already are doing that can connect? Rather than, because we, if we try to come up with new things, we'll just run ourselves ragged. Because Paul is, is, is encouraging us to think of ourselves as being useful to each other. And part of it is, we'll hear in Second Thessalonians, that some of the Christians in Thessalonica were expecting Christ to return so soon that they figured they could stop working and spend all their time in prayer. And Paul's like, well, um, actually, you still need to be useful to each other. Uh, because, and the reasons are given in verse 12, that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What is brotherly love for? Well, so that you can walk properly before outsiders in Christian witness and making disciples of the nations. And that's part of where as we walk, as we walk properly before outsiders, as they see us loving one another, this is one of the marks of the Christian that Jesus said, that, that they will know that you're my disciples because of the love that you have for one another. But then the second part, and be dependent on no one, is actually connected to all this. Because in the ancient Roman world, if, yeah, if you're going to survive, you need to have a patron. You need to have somebody with sufficient clout to protect you. Early Christians were either drawn from the synagogue, if they were Jewish, or from some pagan patronage network. And if you're in a patronage network, that means you're participating in your patron's sacrifices at the pagan temple. So if you're going to walk properly, honestly, decently, before outsiders, then you need to take care of business among yourselves. Uh, in our day, if, if you say, and be dependent on no one, it sounds like you're saying, I'm an island, I can take care of myself, I don't need anybody else. But guess what? The you is plural. That y'all may walk properly before outsiders. That y'all be dependent on no one. That, in other words, that we take care of one another. That's, that's, actually, that's actually the force of what Paul says. If, 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 you, if you hear this as a, ah, that you de- you're dependent on no one, that means everybody needs to be individually independent. That's not what Paul's saying. It's that the Christian community be able to be, and be so interwoven and connected that we take care of each other. Now, it's still possible to do this sort of thing. Back in 2008, when the economy blew up, we had several tradespeople in the congregation. And in 2008, that was the housing crisis, there were no construction jobs. So we had a congregational unemployment rate of around 15%. Our deacon sent out a note to the congregation saying there are several skilled tradespeople available, and so if people could provide materials, the deacons would try to help pay labor costs in order to provide work for these men. Now, over the next year, 
it's safe to say this congregation, as well as friends, because words started to spread, <laughs> but this congregation provided somewhere in the vicinity of $100,000 over the course of a year to help these tradespeople. But, and it was by giving them work. It was, oh, I got a bathroom renovation I need done. I, I need my house painted. I need, so it was all sorts of things that people were like, oh, I, I guess I, could, I, could, I can afford to do that. And they had, they had their own uh, ways of doing it. And there were some people who needed help from the deacons to do that, but the deacon fund never ran out. So work with your hands, and as a community, be dependent on no one. We should be interdependent in the life of the body. That we should, and that also then, as an interdependent community, we should be then drawing others into this. So this is why Paul brings in how we walk before outsiders, that they need to see us loving one another, caring for one another, living together as the body of Christ. And it's, it's, just, in the, it's just in the ordinary doing. It's not that there's some sort of, ah, special fancy thing. It's just in the ordinary walking together that we love one another. The brotherly love isn't just sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling for each other. Brotherly love is the rubber meets the road, life on life, walking together and providing and caring for one another. So let's ask God to help us with this. Lord, help us because we, we tend to be selfish and we tend to like to run after our own desires and, and plans and we and we don't we do not love the way that you have loved us. Have mercy on us and help us because you have sent your son our Lord Jesus who came in our flesh and who has shown us this because he did it for us and drawn us has drawn us to himself. Help us then to live as you have as you have lived in your beloved son. For we pray this in his name. Amen.